So for those of you who are guests uh, with us, we're uh, in, the ser in the middle of a series on the life of King David. And we've been doing this since uh, middle of June or so. Uh, we had an intern, Keith, who was walking us through it. Mark has walked us through parts of it. And, and throughout uh, this series, we've been... Uh, we've, we've called the series the once and future king and throughout this series what we've been saying is is that in order for us to really understand who Jesus is and and what he came to do we need to go back and understand the life of King David King David was the greatest king that the people of Israel ever had in fact I don't know if you know this but there is no other character in the Bible about whom we know more than King David, except one, the ultimate king, his ancestor, Jesus. And we've been looking at his life as he's been uh, 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 moving from a, a, an unknown shepherd boy living on the outskirts of a little town called Bethlehem to rising through the ranks of King Saul's military, where he became sort of his top general and his greatest military uh, uh, right-hand man. And then he became king. And we find ourselves now in this passage, which many theologians describe as actually one of the most important theological texts in the entire Old Testament. Because in this passage, we discover what God's plan was for the ultimate king. In other words, uh, if we want to know, as, as, or I should put it this way, actually, as, as the early church was trying to understand who Jesus was as the ultimate king who had come and who had been the promised one, they went back to this text to, to understand how Jesus fit in the grand story of God's redemption of his people. And so we're going to look at this passage together. We're going to, we're going to walk through it relatively quickly. We're just going to look at three things. We're going, to, we're going to look at David's desire. We're going to look at God's response. And then we're going to look at God's promises. And then we're just going to see what that has to do with us today, living some 3,000 years after the events described here. So first of all, God's desire. Well, or sorry, David's desire. In verses 1 and 2, it says this. At the, after the king was settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies, he said to Nathan, the prophet, Here I am living in a house of cedar while the ark of God remains in a tent. What's going on here? Well, David is finally at rest after many, many years of fighting enemies from all sides. Some from inside his own nation, his, his, his own king, was trying to kill him for a period of time, and of course, other nations around him. But it wasn't just David who was finally at rest. The whole nation of Israel was at rest. If you read uh, the book of Exodus all the way through to the book of 2 Samuel, what you see about the nation of Israel is that they are constantly harried, they are constantly attacked, they are constantly being oppressed by enemies of different types and from all different places. And now finally, they are at rest. And David in his beautiful palace, luxurious palace made of cedar. So think of you, those of you who have cedar chests or cedar closets. It's got this, this beautiful aroma in the days before, uh, you know, uh, Febreze and stuff like that. This, this was considered a very luxurious place to live. And he's looking out his window, and what does he see? He sees the Ark of God. 
Now, the ark of God represented God's presence. It represented God's presence among his people. And he sees that God's house or God's presence is still living in a tent. When God brought the people of Israel out of Egypt, he made his presence felt with them through this ark and he had a tent built for him that that would go with the people and the ark would be placed in the tent every time the people of Israel stopped on their journey they would set up this tabernacle this tent and they would put the ark in there and that's where God lived among the tents of God's people and David's looking out and he's like here I am living in this palace in all this opulence and there's God my God the Lord is living in a tent now the tabernacle was quite an ornate tent, all right? It was beautifully embroidered and all this kind of stuff. But don't forget, this is like hundreds of years later. And so that thing is probably kind of moldy, kind of tattered. It was looking kind of rough. And so David wants to build his Lord a temple. And he says this to Nathan the prophet, and Nathan does what, what any good minister does when someone says, hey, I want to give you a whole bunch of money to build a, a church. He says, go for it. Man, it's a tough crowd. That was a funny joke. Whatever. You're just all really into it. That's fine. Okay. So Nathan says, go for it. And you know, what you see here in this moment is a little bit of King David's character, at least at this point in his life. Here he is at the height of his power, okay? He is at the apex of his power and his influence and his success. And he has vanquished all his enemies and what does he do? He says, I want to do something for the Lord. Now, usually when people reach their height of their power, when they're very, very successful, the, the reality is, is that most of the time when, when people get that way, they kind of become sort of arrogant. They become sort of self-absorbed, you know? They're kind of proud of themselves. I don't know if you know the comedian Brian Regan. Anybody know who Brian Regan is? Not many of you, okay. Well, he's super funny. And he's got this great bit called I Walked on the Moon. You can look for it on YouTube. It's quite funny. And he's talking about how when people get together at a dinner party and they don't really know one another, he says, I don't understand it. People are always trying to one-up each other. They're always trying to talk about how good and how great they are. And he says, you know, you're, you're sitting there. And he said, yeah, you know, I had a couple wisdom teeth pulled the other day. And you had two wisdom teeth pulled? I had four wisdom teeth pulled. And he talks about this character called the me monster. He says, yeah, you know, I'm a corporate man and I fly around in jets and I'm building mergers and acquisitions. And he goes, me, 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 me. And he said, wouldn't it be great if you, if you were one of the astronauts who walked on the moon? Because you could trump everybody at every dinner party. You just sit there and the person's talking about all their successes. They just got their PhD. They just got a Nobel Prize. They just got their appointment to Oxford or Harvard and you're eating your chips and finally you say, hmm, interesting. I walked on the moon. Boom. Mic drop. That's how human beings are. We are, we are constantly looking for ways to, to, to promote ourselves and, and make ourselves feel like we have a sense of worth through our accomplishments. But that's not David's role here at all. That's not his attitude. That's not his character. David is thinking about honoring the Lord. He's fulfilling the shorter catechism. What is the chief end of humankind? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's what David is trying to accomplish. So that's David's desire. But the weird thing is, is that God's response to this seemingly great desire is to actually say no. He goes to Nathan the prophet and and, and he says to Nathan, 
don't do it. Tell David that he is not allowed to build this temple for me, this house for me. Now, why would God do that? And there's two reasons that the text gives us. The first one is in verse 6. It says this. I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I have been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Here's what God is saying. This is showing us the humility of God. God is saying, my people lived in tents for centuries. They were wanderers. They were nomads. They had, they had no permanent home. And so I lived in a tent. I was a wanderer. I was a nomad. I had no permanent home. What God is saying is, is that I'm the kind of God who dwells with his people. I'm the kind of God who gets up close and personal with his people. If my people are poor, then I will live poor. If my people will suffer, then I will suffer alongside them. And he's saying to David, look, David, your kingdom is not, it's established, and you have, you have peace from your enemies, but it's not entirely stable yet. And not until it is stable am I going to have a permanent home. My people still live in tents, then therefore I live in tents. Now understand something, friends. This is actually one of the very unique things about Christianity. In Christianity, we have a God who does not stay up high and mighty in his heavenly realm and look down upon us poor peons and think, man, sucks to be them. We have a God who actually came down and, and got himself exposed to and, and experienced the, the stuff of living in this screwed up world. We have a God who can identify with our pain and with our suffering and with our stories of hardship and heartache. You know, in John chapter 1, it says that when Jesus came into this world, he tabernacled among us. That's John 1 verse 14. It says he dwelt among us. The word there is actually tabernacled. And what John is saying there is that Jesus, the Son of God, did the exact same thing that his Father has been doing all along, which is identify with his people. Our God is a humble God, Christian. Our God is not a self-important God. I know we, we sing all praise and glory to God, and he deserves all praise and glory, but he, he doesn't need all that praise and glory from you and me to satisfy his ego. God is self-sufficient. He is entirely uh, uh, sufficient in and of himself. He doesn't need us to add anything to him. You know why we are supposed to give all praise and glory to God? Because it is fitting for us. When you go to the Louvre, and you see the Mona Lisa, you don't say, wow, you're amazing, Mona Lisa. You're awesome, painting. What do you do? You say, man, that Leonardo da Vinci, he was a genius. He was an incredible painter. What vision he had, what artistry ability he had. It's, it's, it's remarkable. You, you praise the author of the great work. You don't say to Macbeth, wow, Macbeth, what a story you've given me. You say, wow, Shakespeare, what an incredible play Macbeth is. Because it's fitting to praise the author, the creator. We praise God because it is fitting for us to do that. But our God in himself, by his nature, is a humble God. That's the first reason he says to David, don't build me a house. The second reason is in verses 8 and 9. And in verses 8 and 9, what God does is 
he reminds David where he came from. He says, look, I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over the people of Israel. I've been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great like the names of the greatest men on earth. This is pointing not just to the humility of God, but it's pointing to the grace of God, you see. He reminds David of all the things that he has done for David before, that all his successes, all the great things that David can stand up and say, look what has happened to me. They're not because of David, they're because of God. What God is saying to David is, is you don't do anything for me, David. You only do things through me. You do things by my power. Now, why did God do that to David? We just said that David's heart was kind, right? He, he, he was, he was, his desire was, was good. He wanted to honor his God. Why does God do this? He's just, he's just trying to do his best for God. Yeah, it's true. But here's something that we don't know from the text, but we know from history. In ancient times, when a conquering king finally had defeated all its enemies, the first thing they would do is they would build a shrine or a temple to their god. And the reason they would do that was because they believed that, that because this god had been with them, they owed this god something, and they better set up a, 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 some kind of, of, of testament to the greatness of that god so that they can put that god in their debt and ensure that that god will stay on their side and establish their power and their rule. You see, it was this idea that, that you earned God's favor by doing something for him, and you could kind of manipulate God and get him in your corner by doing something majestic and, and, and over the top for this God. And so, a uh, guy by the name of Eugene Peterson uh, uh, wrote a great little book about the life of King David. He writes this. He says, do you know what I think? I think David was just about to cross over a line from being full of God to being full of himself. David, riding the great crest of acclaim, having decisively defeated the opposition, united God's people and captured the allegiance of all Israel. He was heavy with success, and he'd begun to think he could do God a favor. But if David continues to develop along these lines, he will be ruined as a representative of God's kingdom. There's a deep insight here, friends, and it's this. The great 90s alternative rock band Toad the Wet Sprocket <laughs> said, it's hard to rely on my good intentions. You see, The nature of the human heart is that even when we're doing well, even when things are, are going along smoothly, even when we're feeling like, like we're, we're firing on all cylinders for the Lord, maybe we're really involved in a ministry and we've been doing our devotions in a dedicated way and we're six months into our Bible reading plan and we haven't missed a day yet, there's a danger that sin is always crouching at the door and looking to to make us feel like we deserve some kind of praise or honor for what we've accomplished. The human heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. That's Jeremiah 17. 
And we're being reminded here that, that God doesn't work like that. You see, it's in our DNA to want to wanna justify ourselves, to make ourselves feel like, like, like God ought to bless us because we're doing a good job for him. But God stops that right here with David, and he says, that's not how I work, David. I am a God of grace. The gospel is that I am unconditionally committed to you. I love you. I delight in you. I have done everything that is necessary for your salvation. And you do good only in response as gratitude for what I have done for you first. So that's God's response. No. I'm not doing it. And by the way, you know, we're going to look now at God's promises, and I just want to make a brief little application before we get to God's promise. Because God doesn't just stop with the response of no. God goes on to give a promise. And you and I need to understand that God's no to us is never, ever just no. It's always because there is a better yes coming. There is a promise coming. When you look at the hardships of your life, when you look at the desires of your heart and you think, it's been so long and I've wanted these things and I've asked God for them and he's continually said no and you're finding it very difficult to wait upon him and to trust him, look at this story and re realize that God doesn't just say no. He always says no but. Not this but. Not now but. Our God is a God of promises, and that's the third point. He says to David, look, I'm going to build you a house. You thought you were going to build me a house? You're not going to build me a house. I'm going to build you a house. Now, of course, he's not talking about a physical, literal house. He's talking about a dynasty. He talks in these verses, uh, in, in beginning in verse... Um, uh, verse 12, when your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And it can't be talking about Solomon. You're thinking maybe it's Solomon, because Solomon's the one who built the temple. But he doesn't establish Solomon's name forever. This is someone else. He says in verse 14, I will be his father and he will be my son. He says in verse 15, my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. In verse 16, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. God is saying to David, I am going to enter a relationship with you and I am going to commit myself to you utterly unconditionally. I am going to commit myself to you utterly unconditionally. I am going to make a covenant with you, and absolutely nothing is going to be able to break it. Verse 13, death will not be able to break it because it's going to be established forever. Verses 14 and 15, sin will not be able to break it because I will discipline that son, and I will never take my love from him. Not even time itself will be able to break it. Look at verse 16. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Now, is this hyperbole? Is this just exaggeration? You know, is Jesus, is God, you know, just 
giving rhetorical flourish here to make a point? Well, God's people thought so for a long time. Because you see, 400 years after David died, the last king of Judah, King Zedekiah, who was in David's line, he was captured by King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. And when Nebuchadnezzar walked into Jerusalem and he captured King Zedekiah, he lined up all his sons in front of him and he had them all slaughtered before his eyes and then he had his eyes plucked out so that the last thing he ever saw was that his children were all dead. And then he didn't kill Zedekiah, he took him off to, to Babylon and he had him live as a slave at his table for the rest of his life. And for 600 more years, it seemed like this promise was lost. That it was going to be unfulfilled. No wonder it says in Psalm 137, by the rivers of Babylon we wept. Why did the people weep while they were slaves in Babylon? Because they were remembering this promise and they were saying, where are you, God? What's happening, God? You promised these things, God. We don't see it unfolding in our lifetime. But then... first page of the New Testament opens with these words. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David. And in Matthew 2, these magi come from the east, these wise men come from the east following the star. And what are they, what are they coming to do? They're coming to worship the king of the Jews. And in Matthew chapter 3, John the Baptist comes preaching this, this thing called the kingdom of heaven. He says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And at Jesus' baptism, God says to Jesus, says to everyone, this is my beloved son whom I love. Listen to him. And what did Jesus say he had come to do? John chapter 2. He's arguing with the Pharisees and he says, you destroy this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. You see, the Gospels, especially Matthew, emphasize again and again and again and again that Jesus is the one who had come to fulfill 2 Samuel 7 a thousand years later. You think you're waiting a long time for God to fulfill his promises for you. Imagine being a people waiting a thousand years years but that's precisely what jesus did because you see jesus he he triumphed over death god made this promise to samuel your descendant will be on the throne and death will not separate us and jesus triumphed over death because he he rose again from the grave after he was died never to die again and he triumphed over sin because he he lived a perfectly obedient life to, life to his father and he when he Excuse me, when he died, he paid the penalty for your sin and my sin so that all our sin has been washed away by his blood. And he triumphed over time itself because this wasn't just a man who died and rose again. This was God in the flesh. The son of David was the son of God. You know how it says in 2 Samuel 7, it says, I will be, he will be my son and I will be his father. In the Old Testament, Adam was the son of God. 
or all the people of Israel were the son of God. Never was an individual the son of God. The people of Israel spent all this time for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years reading this promise and going, what on earth does this mean? Who is this guy? Who's going to be called the son of God? And they never could have imagined it would be God himself in the flesh. One theologian says that 2 Samuel 7 is a promise so big that only Jesus could fill it. Because he wasn't just a king in the line, he was the king, the ultimate king, the final king, the perfect king. God's promises fulfilled to his people. Okay. What do we do with that now? As one of my seminary professors used to like to ask, what's the cash value of this? Man, I got like about seven. Huh? Yeah. I'll give you three because of the time. First of all, the cash value of this is all those promises that God made to those Horlings kids this morning. All those promises that God made to anybody who has been baptized into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. All of those promises are assured. They are certain. Because Jesus is a conquering king. What does a conquering king do? He brings the spoils of war to his people. And the spoils of his war is that you are united to him and he will never leave you. He will never forsake you. And all his promises are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. That's the first thing. The second thing is that this means that there is hope for the world. You know, you look around the world today and you go, wow, things are messed right up. You know, I grew, I'm, a, I'm a Gen Xer. I grew up at a pretty awesome time, right? Like we had towed the wet sprocket, okay? Peace, prosperity, a couple little bumps with recessions here and there, but come on, man, we are rich. And I never imagined that, that Russia would be going to war potentially with the West again. I never imagined that we would live in a world that was, that was questioning our very biology and what it meant to be a human being anymore. I never imagined that we would continue to live in a world where, 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 where racial discrimination was alive and well and where classism was still at work and where greed and, 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 and oppression were still uh, uh, surging even among modern Western countries like our own. And it can get pretty depressing. But this promise reminds us that our ultimate future is not in some earthly kingdom that's finally got things figured out where all the politicians are completely honest and everybody who makes lots of money is super generous and everybody who's poor, makes really good decisions with the, the money that they've been given so that we all end up living harmonious, nice lives with one another. No. Our future is a heavenly kingdom that will come down into this world and transform this world. 
because a true king brings for his people rest and justice and peace and prosperity. And we've seen with the rulers of the world down through the centuries that nobody seems to be able to deliver on the promise. But Jesus, the perfect king, will deliver on the promise. Those of you who know the Horling story know that for them and for their children, there have been hard, hard spots, dark spots. Not every chapter of their story is bright sunshine. There are chapters of their story that are very dark and very painful. And some of you have chapters in your stories that are very dark and very painful. And this promise is, is that that will never be the end of your story. It's like Sam in Lord of the Rings when he wakes up and he sees Gandalf and he says, Gandalf, I thought you were dead. Wait a minute, I thought I was dead. And then he asks him, he says, is everything sad going to come untrue? So therefore, this story, the cash value for you and for me today is that we can, we have every right to be, and brothers and sisters, if you're a Christian, we have every responsibility to be the most joyful, most hopeful, the most disgustingly sunshiny people on earth. Because nothing can get us down. Jesus did the impossible for you. He marched into hell for you. And he beat death. He beat sin. He beat time itself. Hallelujah. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the fulfillment of these promises made to King David some 3,000 years ago. Your people had to wait so long to see those promises fulfilled in Jesus. And we pray, O King Jesus, that you will come again. We have waited long for your return. Enable us to wait patiently, even as we ask for it. And in the meantime, give us the joy that comes from knowing that the ultimate king reigns and rules and has beat the most scary of enemies, death, sin, and time for us. In his name we pray. Amen.